You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, it's David Bloom. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech, where we look at the collision of media, entertainment, and technology and pick through the rubble for a few golden moments and gems of insight and wisdom. Well, not for me, but somebody out there. So glad you could join us once again. I am always grateful to have an audience out there listening and look forward so much to hearing your comments and posts and perspectives on some of the things that I talk about and write about. I'm also deeply appreciative to the sponsors who help make the show possible. Thanks for everything. It's been an interesting week. Instagram threw the world of influencers into a tizzy when it announced that it may no longer publicly display how many likes each post gets. They're experimenting in Canada with some users up there. They get to be the guinea pigs. But I think this initiative has a really good chance to go system-wide, and I have to say, good. It's, uh, for once, something from Facebook that I can applaud, and it has been quite a while, let me just say. In this case, it's time we move beyond the like stage and this complicated relationship that we have with social media. And I'm not alone in this thinking. I talked with Becca Alexander, the president of Socialite, which is a longtime social media um, marketing company that represents about 100 influencers, mostly on Instagram and fashion and beauty and lifestyle. I've got an interview with Becca talking about some of this stuff. I mean, more generally, I just I have to say that I think the Instagram change, I mean, yes, for Socialite, I mean, Becca says, look, this is all good news as far as she's concerned. As she put it, we've always seen likes as the least interesting metric. And she'll get into that more in our conversation. But, you know, it uh, it means we, we need to get over this stuff, really. Uh, it, this is like the worst possible metric ever. It's taking us all back to high school. And yes, a lot of influences are still in high school, but a whole bunch more of us aren't. And it's time to grow up. And social media needs to do it too. I mean, one of the challenges is, of course, the way we actually consume Instagram. It's so hot and so popular and has taken off and really supplanted in many people's minds uh, Facebook, its owner. It requires less of us. But have you seen the way that particularly some teenager goes through their Instagram feed. As Becca put it, it's scroll, double tap, scroll, double tap. That means they're liking it. And just moving on, boom, boom, boom. This is not engagement. This is not a meaningful connection. If I'm a brand marketer, I'm not saying, hmm, boy, I really made a point with that beautifully composed, laboriously arranged brand presence in that shot. In part, the change that we're seeing from Instagram is a result of, you know, finally uh, Instagram acknowledging that it has created this wall between on uh, content creators and influencers' audiences. So uh, they're doing that to milk more money. If you want to reach people on Instagram and Facebook, you got to pay for it. That's what they're set up to do, and now they have fully put in place measures to make sure they get more ad revenue and that money doesn't go directly between a brand and an influencer. Likes don't matter much if you have to pay Instagram to reach the people anyway. But it also means, I think, that Instagram is finally, silently acknowledging the deeply corrupted ecosystem of fake followers, fake likes, and fake comments that's accreted around the yuckier corners of its red-hot platform as well as on pretty much every other major influencer site, but particularly the big ones. I mean, Donald Trump last week met with Twitter CEO Jack 
one meal a day Dorsey, as I like to call him, since he only eats one meal a day. I think hunger makes him do some dumbass stuff, but that's another, that's another uh, post, I think. Uh, but they met on a range of issues, supposedly, but it mostly ended up with Trump complaining about why he didn't have more followers. Dorsey had to explain patiently how many bots, fakes, and other fraudulent followers are infesting the president's feed. As Twitter keeps zapping off the fakes, uh, Donald doesn't get any more follower growth than he does. I mean, he's not happy about that. He thinks he deserves more. But I got to say, it sure beats the heck out of having to answer all those subpoenas that he's been receiving. It's not much better on Instagram, which is in fact far larger than Twitter, but no less infested. Like most brands and other reputable influencer marketing consultants, Becca is pretty quick to say her agency won't work with influencers who puff up their followers with fake accounts, use chatbots to generate fake comments, or otherwise try to manipulate perceptions of their popularity. And that's good. I think that's another step forward that we're seeing throughout the industry. But let the likes go. And while you're at it, get rid of the public follower accounts and dump the comments too. You know, from a brand standpoint, most Instagram comments are worthless, or at least off point. A photo of an influencer in blue jeans spawns few comments about the jeans, but plenty about, oh, how pretty the influencer is, or how great her hair and makeup are. Where did she get that blouse? For the jeans maker, this is all useless, and he's the one, or she's the one, or they're the ones paying the bill. Becca mentioned that brands care far more these days about metrics like how many people are saving the image, because they'll keep seeing that image over and over again in their saved area. Or how many are swiping up to actually buy a pair. Now that's real return on investment, and that's a metric that matters. I mean, not everybody is worried about killing off likes. Netflix, shockingly, going the other direction. It's also subscription-driven. The streaming giant's currently experimenting with its top 10 list to signal what everyone else is watching. Netflix has long been tight-lipped about viewership, uh, even to its show's creator's frustration. But now they're talking more about their biggest hits and news releases and earning calls. They've promised that they will share more information to their creators and others. And it's all, um, I don't know if it's a move to transparency so much as an effort to capture, for instance, that group of audience members who decide what they want to watch based on what everyone else is watching. That encourages more viewership of Netflix blockbusters. And when you hear about Bird Box getting... 45 million views over Christmas week. I think that helped boost the viewership that went up to something what uh, I think it was 85 million uh, subscribers had viewed by the end of the first four weeks. I think that was the stat that that Netflix put out. I mean, I think more importantly for Netflix's uh, purposes, knowing that there are some hotly watched, highly regarded shows out there builds a sense of event programming uh, a chance to zeit, uh, surf the zeitgeist, and, and the sort of water cooler sharing over a show that we've all seen that just isn't possible when you're just flailing around in the ocean of content that Netflix has. Netflix isn't representative of general trends. Online publishing, for instance, seems to be shifting away from scale for scale's sake. They're spending less time pursuing likes and shares and more time building tightly defined audiences willing to buy a subscription, go to a live event, purchase merchandise, or otherwise directly support a site through, say, something like Patreon. I just saw something today, this morning, that The Guardian uh, out of England, which has um, not a hard paywall, but asks at the end of every article, please support us, We good journalism costs money, is actually seeing a big uptick in the funding that it's getting in from voluntary payments from subscribers, from non-subscribers, but readers who say, yeah, I'll give you some money for this. So that's another way to do it. It's a little bit like the, 
public radio plea for uh, Pledge Week, but they're doing it on every story, and I think it's paying off, and I think it's great because they do good work. And they can hire me, but I don't think that'll happen. Anyway, a couple weeks ago, a smart piece in Medium suggested that, in fact, publishers in the early gold rush days of five years ago were distracted by the huge wash of investment capital that came in, venture capital in particular, but also uh, money from Hollywood strategic investors such as Disney, Warner Brothers, NBCU, CAA, WME, and UTA all jumped in on sites like Vice and Vox, BuzzFeed, Mike, Gizmodo, Gawker, Recode, and, you know, the MCNs that were out there, at least ones like Maker and Machinima, Awesomeness, who were all picked up, at least in part, by some of these big operations. But the point that the piece made, and I, uh, I'll try to link to it in, in written stuff so you can check it out, was that to reach scale and lock up readers, sites gave away their news stories, videos, and other content that they'd so laboriously created. And that's fine when you're sitting on several million dollars in investment capital. You can do that for a while, trying to get your scale up so you can get ad revenue coming in. They were all betting that revenue would keep coming in, keep scaling up, and eventually would pay for everything. But it hasn't happened. You keep seeing layoffs. You keep seeing pivots. You keep seeing shifts by all these publishers, or they're closing, or they're merging, or they're being bought up and shut down. The only platforms that were scoring big in the free content era were Google and Facebook, and their subsidiaries, YouTube and Instagram. Now more sites are trying to connect directly with audiences. They're providing far more of what those readers want instead of what advertisers want, and they're doing it for a reasonable price that sustains the best and smartest of the content creators. All of which brings us back to Instagram and those in a tizzy influencers and, in some cases, the brands that work with them. It's time to focus on more important metrics like saves and swipe ups that show people really care enough about your brand or your client's brand in somebody like Becca's case to maybe buy something. You need to accept that the process of finding online partners will be more complicated and involve a lot more sharing of back-end data not available directly to outsiders. And you need to accept that future influencer deals will probably come with contract provisions for minimum performance and the possibility of make goods exactly the same thing that old school broadcasters have been doing for decades when their ads didn't deliver the, the eyeballs that, that they'd said that they would deliver. And we should be giving thanks that finally we're taking a step forward in our relationship with social media and influencers toward more honesty and a clearer understanding of who's doing what for whom and what really matters. That can only be a good thing. Stay tuned. I'm going to have a word from our sponsor, a word for our sponsor, then uh, we'll come back and hear from Becca Alexander of Socialite, the New York and Los Angeles-based influencer firm, talking about what it all means with uh, Instagram's new shift toward getting rid of public likes. We'll be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much to our sponsor, and thanks again to you guys. Now we have my conversation a few days ago with Becca Alexander, the founder and president of Socialite, influencer marketing and management company. They have about, well, they have about 100 uh, Instagram, mostly Instagram influencers in their stable that they manage, but they also advise brands on all kinds of influencer marketing projects in a separate division. They've got an operation out here in West Hollywood, but Becca is back in New York and Manhattan, I believe. Here's a conversation with Becca. She's a smart cookie and 
I really like a lot of what she's saying in terms of a much smarter approach to the metrics that matter in Instagram and beyond. Instagram is talking about, apparently, not showing likes, I mean, yep. on, on posts. And I'm really, it, it, yeah, it led me into a bunch of other stuff, thinking about, you know, what that would mean for all of social media, which is driven by, like, these sorts of vanity numbers. But to start with, I guess I wanted to talk with you as somebody who is a, the head of a, a social media marketing, uh, influencer marketing company, yep. what, what the potential implications are just for this decision and what it means more broadly. So first of all, yeah, of course. How, you know, what your thoughts are about mm -hmm. the potential implications for no longer showing like, what does that mean? And what does that mean for the kinds of work that you and companies like yours do? In order for me to answer that, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a, a slight step back. Sure. Um, a few years, essentially, when, you know, following, the perception that you're following equaled the amount of people you've reached was essentially, mm -hmm. you know, true, right? So influencers cared very much about their following number because the assumption was that that's how many people not only saw their content, but also engaged with their content in some way, even if, even if it was just seeing the content. Right? right, and then right. at a certain point, we started valuing quote engagement in a similar way as we started as we were valuing followers. So engagement meaning how many likes and comments someone receives on their content, and then right. a metric called the engagement rate became very very popular for both brands and influencers to use to try to understand how much influence someone actually has over their audience but the mm. assumption being that the people who you know took the time to either like or comment on your post were actually your most dedicated and most engaged audiences mm. and then of course you know more recently um, as Instagram basically almost like created a wall between content creators and their audiences, reach and impression metrics became the key to our business. Um, and brands really started understanding based on a lot of, you know, education that had to be provided by agencies like us for the brands that followers is not an important metric anymore because what's really important is how many people actually view the content and then how many people engage with the content. Reach and impression numbers are not something that you can see, right? It's not a tangible number you can see, but comments and likes you obviously still can. Yeah. So when Instagram recently released that likes may be hidden from, you know, the consumer's view, but of course not from the influencers. We internally right. started having a lot of conversations about what that would mean. So yeah. for us, one of the things that we do think it means from an analytical standpoint is that brands will rely even heavier on back-end data, including reach and impressions, more so than likes. Mm -hmm. which means that there will be more pressure put on some other key metrics that are not mm -hmm. wide, widely used right now, including mm -hmm. swipe-ups, 
So how many swipe ups uh-huh. do your story views receive? You know, how, how many clicks are you actually driving purchase intent clicks? Are you driving to a brand or a, you know, website? And then saves is another key metric that isn't currently widely used, but something that's becoming very, very important for brands. Saves. So, so you're actually saves. saving like say they put up a, I don't know, a flyer for a cool product and you go, oh, I want to save that. Remember that because I want to go and get it. Maybe not now, but maybe in a couple of weeks or whatever. That's, Correct. So that, that's the thinking. Right? Product. It, it might be like an inspiration photo of some sort. Think of it as more like a Pinterest. Consumers have the option of basically almost creating Pinterest type boards in their own accounts. So you can save different types of content. You can categorize that type of content. So for example, let's say it is a product that is purchasable. Right now you can save it into a board of some sort or a collection mm-hmm. of some sort. And all of those products, you know, we assume you'll eventually be able to purchase as Instagram rolls out the shopping feature. Yeah. Sooner or later, they're going to copy whatever Pinterest has. It's just the next step, right? Uh, yes. I mean, right now, brands, right? So you, could, if you follow brands, you can currently shop from a brand page. So in the same way that if I went to, let's say, I mean, anyone from Abercrombie to Anine Bing, who is an influencer Mm -hmm. and also her own brand, you can shop her, you know, their Instagram account, basically. And what you can do before you click to buy is actually save that content. And usually save um, means that someone cares so much about that piece of content that they want to essentially come back to it at a later time. And again, it could be something, you know, for example, a lot of our, you know, girls at the office will save content like travel-based content or food-based content if they're looking for, you know, restaurants that they want to try at some point or a destination they want to go to. It doesn't necessarily have to be a specific product that they want to buy. It could be something, you know, else, or it could be a beauty look that they want to try later on. But saves is becoming a bigger and bigger metric for us. Specifically because you know that if someone saves that content, they're going to view it multiple times, driving up the impression numbers, which is really important for brands, especially as they're looking for more brand awareness or top of funnel campaigns. And and I guess the the next step would be if you say, I was in Panama earlier this month for 10 days and posted a few things. If somebody sees the picture of the, the, the great beach I was on for a few days, maybe they don't go to that resort but they go to Panama, you know, and they're thinking about it and and they'll look for, oh, when I go for my holiday in October, I put this aside as a place to think about. And then if you're in Panama, you go, okay, I'm going to market to that person within Instagram, right? And that's, that's, I guess, the thinking, right? Yeah, that's the like sort of larger goal there. Going back to, to likes or specifically metrics that we can see right now, right? So not back end Mm -hmm. analytics, but front end analytics. So we as an agency typically, especially as as we've gotten away from using followers as a key metric, are currently assessing the the rate of an influencer's content based on their engagement rate. So again, you know, followers to likes and comments. Without seeing their likes, it will be very difficult to gauge any sort of metric on how much that influencer would cost, especially because we don't care what their following number is. And usually, or the way that we've we've sort of assessed um, by doing a lot of like deeper dives into many, many different types of influencers, different types of campaigns, reports, you know, things like that, we know that 
likes very much attribute to how many people actually view the content. So the more engagement an influencer has, the larger their reach and impression numbers are. So we don't 100% know how they're like how the back end works, right? Like Instagram's actual algorithm, but we do know that someone with a higher engagement rate does have a larger reach. So mm-hmm. we know that there is something to the formula that essentially almost opens up the doors further for people to see the content as it receives more likes and comments, which is also so, why a lot of influencers use, you know, like comments, bots, and sort of other things that drive up their engagement because they think they can trick the algorithm into thinking that, you know, more people want to see that specific content and that Instagram will essentially open up that content to a wider group of people. Does that work? So we don't work with influencers that show, based on our own technology, that that show that they've done anything fraudulent. So I couldn't 100% tell you. We um, we rely very heavily on audience data to be able to tell whether or not an influencer has done something fraudulent. That's usually the best way to really tell, especially because there is a lot of misconceptions about what a fake follower or a bot actually means. Right, because there's there's a lot of inactivity on Instagram in general, especially when, you know, influencers who have large followings aren't reaching all of their audiences, which means that those audiences are essentially inactive already, right? Because they're not engaging with their content. So typically someone with a lower engagement rate is gonna show or appear to have more bots because they have a more inactive audience. Makes total sense. I, I mean, what you're saying is that you all, your algorithms, your fraud, essentially fraud detection tools to kind of weed out, you know, what's real from what's sort of puffed up. Those pieces are losing a useful forward-facing indicator, sounds like. Yeah. So basically, it's going to be harder to gauge certain more valuable kind of pieces of data on influencers if we can't see the like which essentially means that we're relying more on the influencer to either provide us that data, right? So there's going to be a lot more back and forth when it comes to negotiating with an influencer for a campaign because you're going to need to either have access to their first-party data, right, which is data directly from Instagram and Facebook, or they're going to have to send screenshots basically proving uh, what their current numbers are. This is going to be like a throwback to the first few years of Snapchat. Sort of. I mean, I I almost look at it as the first few years of like blogs to me, where brands who were interested in working with bloggers needed a screenshot of their Google Analytics. And there was a point where influencers were Photoshopping their Google Analytics in order to get higher paying campaigns. Of course they were. (laughs) Yeah, which is definitely something that was happening because Google Analytics is a relatively simple platform that is very easy to to fake, right? And there's no way for a brand to know, especially because brands weren't working with influencers the same way they do with, you know, sort of traditional media platforms and publishers because they weren't buying ads. Right, because right. on on ads you can you can track impressions. They weren't right. doing that. They were buying blog content, native content, and of course the influencer could have claimed they had half a million views, and then mm-hmm. sent a report being like, "Oh look, whatever, half a million people saw this piece of content." 
So Mm -hmm. that was like, I mean, people think that influencers do fraudulent things now as if that never happened. It's been happening for a very long time. Well, the when there's money and gray areas and little oversight and no third party validation, somebody's going to try it. I mean, it's just like guaranteed. Yeah, definitely. Of course. And it's interesting because, you know, right now or the past like, for example, when, when Instagram first started, right, everyone was so focused on growing their following, right? Like, their growth mm-hmm. rate and how many followers they had was, like, the holy grail of, like, oh, my God, you're successful, you're creating cool content, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now it's right. ev- because everyone knows that your following isn't as relevant unless, of course, you have, like, 10 million followers, right? We're, we're more talking about people who have, like, under a million-ish. Their likes is what gives them validation and mm. removing like you know from being visible hopefully will give some of these influencers a little bit more sort of like peace because there's so much pressure on them for creating content that's going to receive a certain amount of likes to the point where a lot of influencers will actually delete content that doesn't receive a certain amount of likes within a certain amount of time of posting knowing that that mm. greatly affects not only their reach and impression but also very much shows that that piece of content isn't engaging their audience, which is their biggest fear is that they become less and less relevant. That's an interesting way to think of it. So you think it actually might be good for their mental health. <laughs> Maybe they yes, complicate your, your life, so. but might make it slightly better for them. Yeah, because I'm, I'm hoping that it, it gives them a break in the sense where content becomes more personality driven versus, you know, visually driven for the sake of like, which is what brands are really looking for right now, you know, because of the oversaturation of the, you know, the space, the ecosystem and the amount of influencers and the fact that now everyone is an influencer. I think it's going to be very beneficial for the influencer and even the consumer who's going to focus less on like, well, how many likes did this receive? Because Mm -hmm. consumers do essentially pay attention to that and that either drives certain behaviors or doesn't depending on the personality of that specific, you know, consumer, but it's going to make things a lot more difficult for brands for sure. Or even us as an agency, sometimes being able to gather that data and being able to, you know, use it in a way that is beneficial for the brands that we're working with and the campaigns that we're putting together, you know, the strategies and the sort of ROI metrics. But on the flip side, you know, if we sort of lost likes altogether, our business wouldn't change because we rely so heavily on reach and impressions, purchase intent clicks as like the main conversion-based data point that brands are really looking for, that if it was up to me, I'd get rid of likes and comments in general. Yeah, well, I I don't think that's a terrible idea, but why would you get rid of comments in general? Just because there's so much toxicity or what? Well, there's that. There's a lot of negativity. There's also a lot of fraud happening within the sort of comment space, yeah. specifically yeah. influencers who are part of comment pods where they, you know, a hundred of them. I don't know if you know what those sure. are. Yeah. That's very deceiving for brands, right? And secondly, comments are very cheap. You know, they they don't provide that much value, especially if it's an emoji some sort. Comments are very uh, cheap to purchase as well. If you are going to do something fraudulent, it's very easy to do it. And, you know, usually, for example, if an influencer posts about a specific brand and let's say it's about, you know, a denim brand, right? They're doing Mm -hmm. a full look. Half mm-hmm. the comments are going to be, you're so pretty, you know, I love your nails, where's your bag from, 
those shoes are great. Where can I get them? Like, it's going to be about anything but the actual product. It's very rarely about the actual product. I believe brands actually lose a lot of value in that type of behavior because of the way the consumer reacts to that type of content. Right. They're not sitting there coating. I mean, it may be a picture of, as you say, somebody wearing those jeans and they may look great in those jeans, but it's everything else. And it's the person and it's all about that as opposed to, oh, where do I get those pants and how much do they cost? It's not that exactly. It's not, this is not a marketing focus group in the way that I think once was dreamed about by some folks early on right. in the social media exactly. revolution. Exactly. So in a sense, if, for example, you didn't have likes or comments and it was a, an ad for a denim brand, in their stories, you know, they could say, best fitting jeans I've ever worn and swipe mm -hmm. up to purchase. And if someone's interested, they're going to swipe up. And if they're not, they're going to move on. There's no reason to essentially comment on, on anything else. Right. There's no, as you say, I mean, you want to get them further down the funnel into buying, converting that if you, you guys are looking about brands want to say, it's nice to have awareness. That's the first top of the top, top, top yep. of the funnel, but we yep. still need to sell. We need to sell stuff. We're spending money. We need right. to sell stuff. We need to get money back. We need ROI. And that's what we ultimately need is not just you're aware, but you go from there to putting some yep. money down. Influencers are sort of mentally pushing back on this idea that they are pawns for brands, which yeah. is the biggest complaint we essentially kind of get from our, you know, roster and our network of influencers. I mean, that's truly what they are, right? They they have become a pawn for brands in the sense of like promoting consumerism. Like that's what they do. That's how they make money. If they didn't do that, if that wasn't the way this entire ecosystem works, then they would be you know, executive assistant at a desk somewhere, like, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> so that's what you find a you point on. you kind of have to take one or the other. Like, you either have to go get a real job where you're making minimum wage somewhere until you, you know, grow within, like, some version of a corporate ladder, or you do what brands want. The problem is because what we don't control in this entire ecosystem is is really anything. Like, generally speaking... You know, sorry, this is going a little bit off topic, but for example, you know, a brand works with an influencer. What they yeah. don't control is how many people see that content, how many likes it's going to get, how many comments, what are those comments, how many people are going to click on it, how many people are going to save it, et cetera, right? They're basically just like rolling the dice in some way versus, yeah. let's say, with more traditional publishers. They knew that they were buying at least a certain amount of, you know, people that were going to see it based on subscribers level so like at least you kind of had certain metrics that you could guarantee I mean an mm -hmm. influencer right now like for example we've recently done some campaigns where we've taken um, the influencers average reach impression click-throughs and uh, engagement and put it actually into their contract where they have to any of their content that they're creating for a brand as part of their ambassador contract if any of those metrics fall below their average, they're going to have to do a make good. So you're doing so what has been traditional in TV forever. Make it's good essentially, TV. essentially. I yeah. mean, brands are buying influencers more and more like media. So if yeah. you look at, you know, all of the metrics, I think likes specifically is the one that's the least important. If you kind of equate it to more traditional marketing or advertising metrics. 
That's interesting. I mean, I don't know if that's uh, true. You can tell me. I've never worked in traditional advertising or marketing, but that's the way I sort of see it. Or that's the way we see it at Socialite. It has always been the least interesting metric. The least interesting metric. I like that. You know, we've got Netflix saying, hey, you know, in their last earnings call a week and a half, you know, two weeks ago, whatever it's been now, hey, we're going to start talking more about the things people like to watch the most. We're, we're experimenting with top 10 lists in the UK. We're uh-huh. you know, talking about Bird Box getting 85 million viewers in its first month, uh, first four weeks is yep. what their metric is. And, you know, this show doing, uh, us doing well, and that show doing well, and this show mm-hmm. in, in Korea, because they actually want to help people wade through. And they say, you know, there's a certain set of viewers who want to see what everybody else is watching and then watch that. And so it helps us, you know, surface the, the most popular stuff. So is there, um, I guess, is there a Yeah, it's like the there? BuzzFeed model for virility. Yeah, exactly. I mean, is there still value there or have we overvalued it, I guess, in the past? And maybe this is a useful for non-Netflix operators who've been too focused on viral so content. That's really interesting because I think Instagram has sort of claimed that that's what they're essentially doing in a more like kind of, weird roundabout way where they're claiming that their algorithm is showing you the content that they assume you want to see right they're curating your own feed so like is if if you can equate your like you know the shows you watch on netflix into a feed of you know what's sort of the latest episode netflix is like Mm -hmm. well you watch this the most so right you should see the news about this first Strange right. thing is, anyone who actually spends a lot of time on Instagram knows that that's not true, even though that's what Instagram has been claiming for a really long time. Specifically, like, I can only really speak for me or my team members who probably spend, yeah. you know, way more than the average user on Instagram. So supposedly the average user is on Instagram like 20 to 30 minutes a day. We're probably right. on Instagram like four hours a day. Right. And I also right. follow like a, a hundreds of influencers and I'm really looking at them for market research more than my own sort of personal, like what's going on in the world to like, un, you know, see what everyone's up to, what are the brands that they're working with? What's the content look like? You know, blah, 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 blah. I'm not doing it because I'm into it. Right. Like my right. goal is like 10 years is to never touch Instagram again. So, <laughs> you know, I'm doing it now and putting in my time. There's a lot of content that I do truly engage with because they're either influencers who are assigned to socialite to our roster or they're my friends, you know, meaning my friend influencers who I'm truly connected with, who I've known for 10 years, et cetera. And there's those influencers who I never engage with. They're basically just market research for me. And I can tell you those influencers show up for me the exact same way that people that I engage with do. So I don't personally believe that that's exactly how the algorithm works. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm like some algorithm know-it-all. I just know that from a user standpoint, if I remove myself from the industry, that definitely is not how mm-hmm. my personal like display is. You know, we were, I was actually reading an article this morning about uh, TikTok. So they actually do exactly what you just mentioned Netflix does or is mm-hmm. looking to do. They are looking to to show audiences the most viral content. So, you know, whether it's someone who has millions of views or someone that just joined the platform and created, you know, a really cool meme, whatever moment, you know, they Mm -hmm. are going to show you on their sort of discovery or front page, all of the content that's going viral. 
Instagram does not do that. It's a really, you know, interesting thing. Or even their Discover page has changed so much, you know, in recent years where it used to be the content that was sort of going the most viral. And now it's just like, oh, you recently looked at cats. Here's 28 cat videos. And I was like, I just happen to be looking at an influencer who owns a cat. I've never looked at a cat account. I don't know what you're talking about. Twitter's always had the top 10 hashtags, right? I mean, that, that thing, the, the, the yeah. trending, the trending thing. Yep. And that's, that's a little different because it's not an individual post. It's a, it's a right. theme. It's a thematic. Yep. What's the hot conversation? Yep. It's a little bit different thing. So do we see this, the, the death of the like, possible death of the like as, as a mm-hmm. potential trend to be devoutly sought and hoped for or what? I mean, cross all It's interesting because I don't know if influencers would be hoping for it. You know, a couple of our influencers are like freaking out (laughs) Um, because they they get a lot more likes than they do comments because like is the sort of easiest uh, behavioral, what's the word, like the easiest thing to get your follower to do. Least friction. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Especially with the way people engage now, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen like a, a 13 to 17 year old scrolling through Instagram. They're just like scroll, double tap, scroll, double tap, scroll, double tap, yeah. right? It's just like, it's it's not a very conscious decision anymore. You're not like, yeah. do I want to like this because I want that person to know that I personally liked it because, you know, I like them, et cetera. It's not that type of behavior. So I think influencers are freaking out because, again, that's the way that brands have for the past at least two at least years have really seen their value. And if brands really look into comments more, which they're probably going to do because that's going to be the only visible metric outside of followers, you know, yeah. if they look into their comments, they're going to very quickly see that those comments aren't really that valuable. Uh, so I think, again, from the influencer's end, um, probably a very scary thing. From our end, I mean, we welcome it, especially since we've been trying to convince brands over the past two years that, you know, their their engagement rate is really not that important. You truly care about how many individual people are you reaching and how many times are you reaching those people and how did those people engage in a more valuable way, which again, just comes back to, you know, clicks um, or swipe ups and saves. So, yeah. you know, that's just, I guess, more of our opinion as an agency and where, you know, we've seen the space over the past decade, you know, to where we mm-hmm. sort of are now based on what brands are asking for. Uh, that's kind of, I guess, how we feel. And that's our show. Thanks so much to Becca Alexander for her time and yours for uh, listening. I hope you enjoyed it and learned a few things. I am David Bloom, your host of Bloom and Tech. Thanks to our sponsors. If you like the show, please like, review, share, do all those nice things that make the magic algorithm machines think that I'm a smart, smart guy who has something to say, even if it's not true, but you know, I'm doing what I can. Appreciate everything, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Until we talk again, have a great one. This is David Bloom for Bloom in Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.
Thank you.